Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Software Crafts Podcast. My name is João, and today with me I have Jim. Jim is an executive director and developer at Morgan Stanley, where he's focused on building customer-facing technology. A Java developer and author, Jim first became interested in Java during his degree program at the University of Warwick. After graduating, he became a member of the London Java community. The community has remained central to Jim's contributions, which include working on design and testing of the JSR310 and serving on Java Community Process Executive Committee for several years. Jim's a regular conference speaker and spent 40 years teaching Java and C++ around the world. Working with Ben Evans and Chris Newland, he co-authored a book titled Optimizing Java. The book is available to purchase on O'Reilly and read on Safari Books or Amazon. More recently, he became Java champion. Hi, Jim, and thanks for your time to be here. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, thanks. So for today, we have a heuristic that it, it's related to the book that you co-author. And the heuristic today is algorithm optimizations have a greater impact than micro-optimizations. What do you think about this? Yeah, it's, it's a really good heuristic, I think, and, and only because it opens up a lot of discussion. Um, I'm going to say up front that the answer is always going to be, it depends. <laughs> I think that's probably the standard answer. So whatever I say from now on, it just depends on your situation. Um, but let's start looking at what this what this means. So to me, a micro-optimization uh, means looking at a very specific piece of code and trying to tune it uh, to improve performance. Okay, so that's why I view micro-optimization to be. Um, if we look at algorithmic optimizations, it's probably you know, looking at sort of the complexity of, of your code execution, maybe looking at a specific area of code and trying to improve it. Now, I think the first thing to say is, is that an algorithmic optimization may also actually be a micro-optimization, which makes this kind of a little bit possibly too granular. Um, and, and I'd like to just give my, my sort of opinion around that just to begin with before we kind of go into the heuristic. I think definitely micro-optimizations are not a good place to start, um, but it may not be that algorithmic optimizations are either. Um, so when it comes to, I think, looking at optimizing your code or looking to improve optimization, I think in a software team, you, you have to be objective-based. Um, I think it's very easy when you're looking at either your own code or someone else's to just go, well, it's slow and we want to make it quicker. Um, but the problem is, is that if you don't have like a, a sort of a goal in mind, you can actually probably spend um, either hours of your time or quite a lot of cash potentially if you work for a company trying to improve something that you maybe can't improve. Um, and that's just something to be really cautious of. And I think it what means if you take this heuristic in isolation, it could be potentially dangerous just just of the just applying it on its own. So I think you know in terms of like, well, how would you even notice whether you've got this problem? I think you've got to look at the application as a whole. Um, and when you're looking at the application as a whole, it's probably likely that code isn't even the place that you want to start. Uh, and, and I think the only way that you're going to get a decent measure upon whether you have like something that should be optimized from an algorithmic perspective is going to be to look at the profile of your overall application under what is realistic production load. So 
the usual suspects will probably rear their head before your code looks like a problem. So databases being slow, transactions, network, and other things that come in, especially if you're doing distributed and microservice-based applications, those could be bigger problems than the code itself. Um, and then you've got to look at things like your platform restrictions. So are you running on sort of uh, near the metal or are you running on sort of a Docker container in somebody's cloud that, you know, you don't really know about too much. Um, and a good profiler will help you capture these. So if we get down to the point where you've used your profiler and you're trying to look at a problem in situ and you've seen, okay, like for example, this method that I'm looking at here is slow, then certainly trying to apply algorithmic changes before trying to look at actual code execution, like a, a very sort of low level is going to help you, in particular in a language like, like Java. Um, I think one thing just to be careful of, though, is that, you know, when you're writing in a language such as Java that's interpreted to begin with and then re-optimized as part of the JIT compilation, is that it can be really easy to look at the code that's in front of you and it not actually be what's really being executed under the hood. So there is there can be that disparity, in, and I have seen it um, several times in my career where you know you kind of look at people who are really intently looking at a problem, and they're only looking at looking at it from a code perspective. And in reality, you know, there's libraries that get pulled in behind the scenes. There's other executions within the method that you may or may not even be aware of. Um, if you look at the compilation chain for something like system.out.println, for example, there are 10 to 15 different chains of methods that get invoked as a result of that just very simple statement. It's the same if you use uh, standard out in, in C++ or any other language. You know, there are libraries behind the scenes and libraries change. So looking at things just from... The, the surface of it may not be the best um, approach. So I've kind of given a couple of thoughts there. I mean, I think I think in general, like I think the heuristic is is pretty sound, but I think you've got to view it within the context. And actually, you don't want to end up with your algorithmic optimization being a micro optimization. So, for example, if you only ever execute that function once in startup or maybe off the critical path of your application optimizing it will add no value. And unless you've kind of got that objective-based um, approach, so you run your profile and you've seen that one function is being executed, let's say 70 or 80% or maybe even 100% of all calls, and you now want to sort of try and improve, let's say, the response time of your application by X number of milliseconds as an example, then you've got something that you can really work towards and see um, what the kind of end result is going to be. Cool. Thanks for um, sharing your thoughts over the, the, the heuristic and also the, the, the pitfalls that we as software engineers can go. And um, one of the things that triggered me during your, um, uh, you share your insights is how to avoid to go on the engineering rabbit hole because it's very easy for us as engineering to see something and improve the next thing. And you talk about delivering no value. What are your, your heuristics to deliver value? Yeah, I, I also, I get to ask if it depends again, but <laughs> just to begin with, I mean, I think in terms of delivering value, value itself is a very, uh, it's a difficult proposition to consider. So if your value as an engineer is measured in, you know, the, the response time of your application, which is in some industries, uh, then actually investing the time in, that particular code base to improve overall efficiencies is adding value. 
I think in many cases, if you've got an application that's sat behind the internet, improval of sort of a few milliseconds, it doesn't really add any value because you've already got like a certain amount of latency that you're already going to get within your application. So the orders of magnitude of actually going and improving performance within code is going to be limited in terms of like the return that it has to your overall product. Um, and I think having that, like keeping up, keeping a mind on what the value is for your, your kind of like role is really important. However, I would also say that it's, it's, it's also useful it kind of talk about going down engineering rabbit holes. It's sometimes useful to do that for the overall understanding of the product that you're working in. Um, so there's not, it's just knowing how to time box that. So I never say to a developer on, on my team or who I've worked with in the, in the past, I would never say something like, well, actually we can't do that because it's not going to add significant value because value in learning is also uh, really important, but we have to keep an eye on, well, what's the deliverable value of what our team is doing versus what is the value learned by actually going and exploring the issue, drilling into it in a little bit more detail and actually figuring out what's going on either under the hood or even just getting used to the tools. Um, the last thing you want to have is, is running into a serious performance issue. So let's take, okay, you've got something on the edge of the internet. You kind of can't, you don't really want to improve it by five milliseconds, but nobody knows how that library works. And all of a sudden things are now taking seven or eight seconds to respond. You don't want to end up in that situation as well, where your developers don't know how to use the tools to be able to interrogate and investigate some kind of like real production issue. So it's, it's all about striking a balance. Like you've got to look at incorporating work within uh, the schedule that you've got to improve value to whatever your product is doing. And I think products and technical value have to be really well aligned. Um, but you also don't want to lose the knowledge of what's happening underneath the covers of your application because uh, in that in that route lies potentially a lot of problems down the line <laughs> yeah yeah that's true and um thanks for sharing how you entice learning within your teams it's um, a very useful insight uh, i will hope that the, the, the more organizations embrace that as well and um you are focused on building customer-facing applications um, in a big organization. Um, do you see lots of these debates within your teams or teams around you about the algorithm op optimizations versus experiments where micro-optimizations didn't work? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think back actually across um, different roles that I've done uh, across you know different companies as well, where like really looking at code as driven as down the wrong path. I think that's probably a good a good place to start. And I can think of one. I'll, I'll hold my hands up and say it was me, um, where we were looking at two different types of XML parsing, uh, which you know doesn't sound like it's a particularly big deal. Um, but the particular application that I'm thinking of. Uh, it processed, I want to say, in the order, you know, of a couple of thousand messages a minute. So, like, actually, lots of uh, getting XML off the wire, parsing it into some kind of domain object, making some decisions, and triggering off some processing and actions downstream. So, we looked at, um, we were trying to look at two different options. So, we were looking at the standard, I think, SACS-based parser, so specific parser for taking XML. Uh, reading it into into the DOM versus using something like Jaxby, which if you're not familiar in Java is one of the standard marshalling techniques which you use to basically do the automatic transformation of 
XML into Java objects. So, you know, there's a really great example of like, okay, we've got these two options. How do we assess whether they're appropriate for our scenario? I'm going to just also caveat that this was quite a long time ago. So just you know, revealing all these things that I've done wrong in the past is hopefully fine. Um, but what, what we did was uh, we took the two things and we just said, oh, well, let's run a very small sample against them for 10 iterations and see which one is quicker. And I've seen this so many times um, in Java uh, with, with different, different things where people go, I'm just going to lift this very specific problem out and try and test it. And the issue with doing that is that you are looking at something outside of your main application um, profile. If you're doing it for 10 iterations, it's all going to be interpreted. So JIT compilation won't have kicked in. And in many cases, benchmarks like that are invalid. They, they, don't, they don't get constructed in the right way. Um, as an aside, I think one of my favorite benchmarks that I've seen was uh, a friend of mine. I was helping him with, with some stuff that he was working on. And he, he came over and said, well, my benchmark is too fast. I don't understand why my benchmark is too fast. It can't be that quick. And we actually looked at what the JVM was doing, and it was optimizing his benchmark away completely. And he was ended up with essentially nothing there. And he's testing the, the result of invoking a no-op. And so, so that's why his, his benchmark was pretty quick. So we've used those kind of like micro benchmarks. So I've seen it in the past where they used to um, make a decision. And usually that decision is driven by some form of bias. And unfortunately, with micro benchmarks or any benchmarks, I think it's, it's Brian Gertz who says this really well, is that benchmarks always give you a number. The problem is, is knowing what that number means or whether that number is correct. I apologize if I misquoted that because I'm just, just sort of pulling that from the air. Um, so, so there, I think there is, there is a real message in that though, which is if you, if you go down the route of doing these benchmarks and you're, you have a bias of something that you're trying to prove, you can potentially get to a result, which is, is actually just wrong. And in this case, I'm not sure whether our answer was right or wrong. Um, but it definitely wasn't accurate. So we, we didn't, we didn't have with a degree of confidence, like what, what it meant to have tested, uh, those two approaches within isolation. Certain languages lead themselves to being quite easy to test, I guess, in, on, a, on, a, on a smaller scale. Uh, Java really isn't one of those languages. Uh, you can do it, and there's, a, there's an application uh, benchmarking tool called JMH, um, the uh, Java Micro Benchmarking Harness, I think it is. Um, and the thing about JMH that sets it aside is it's written by the developers of the JDK, and it's used to test the performance of the JDK. And it gives you a micro benchmarking suite that avoids actually what Java's trying to do, which is to make your code quicker. And if you think when you're writing a benchmark, if you don't capture the value somewhere, then when it comes to optimization, you're not using that value, and then it's gonna get thrown away. So it has like lots of underlying representations known as black holes to help you be able to retain value, but also critically, not impact the benchmark itself because a lot of things like benchmark selection, um, benchmark processing, they really can invalidate your results. So what I would say is, is that whatever, whenever you look at a micro benchmark, it's probably wrong is, is the initial starting point. And they do need that. It's sometimes quite difficult, even with just a couple of lines of code um, to see where they, they will be going potentially wrong. Um, so in terms of like, do these discussions come up? Absolutely they do. And I think it's usually when you're trying to make a technology decision or a technology choice around 
orders of magnitude. So if you're going to say, for example, in, in my example, I'm saying a thousand times a minute. So, so actually the difference of that being one library versus another, maybe even one algorithm versus another algorithm or one approach versus another approach, you know, that can be quite insightful for you to, to know, especially if it's on the critical path of your application. Um, but the best way to get a result is to test it in an, as non-biased a way as possible, which usually means wiring into the application and running it with the same same load and, and allowing the application to warm up, discarding the, the beginning results, and then looking at it from uh, a, an execution profile over a course of time where you're then saying, well, let's apply now some statistical analysis, which is usually where you know, the best performance engineers I know are very, very good at statistics. Um, and that's because it's really important that you don't introduce some form of bias into your analysis, essentially. Cool. Um, you touch upon um, a few topics and I was writing down uh, some <laughs> questions. <laughs> so embrace yourself. So uh, you told a story for, from what I assume a few years ago and picking up today newest techniques like shadowing production, canary uh, forms, um, how do you see those uh, in the light of your story and these algorithm op optimizations using those techniques? Sorry, can you just repeat the techniques again? Sorry, I missed yes. the part. So of the, the um, techniques like uh, shadowing in production, like um, having copy A and B, having the critical path with the old algorithm and the critical path with new algorithm without user seeing that i believe that was twitter writing about this a few years back and also um, another one that pops up that is canary releasing uh, also popping up with continuous delivery and the cloud becoming more mainstream looking back do you see these techniques as useful in the light of your story i mean i think when it comes to so so, so i think there's a, there's a couple of good questions in there um, and a couple of different different applications of them as well. So being able to mirror production or to utilize some off-production type simulation in the old world was very, very difficult. Like if you think about, um, are you talking about maybe running on dedicated machine hosts, uh, having dedicated databases, potentially you know, different formats of your platform, um, that was actually really hard. Like it was, it was very difficult to do production parallels and to a certain extent, trying to get a profile that fits production data is very difficult without having a way of either tr mirroring traffic to, to one of your comments or being able to actually, um, play at the same time or that sort of switch over environments quickly. I certainly think like the arrival of, of like more DevOps type of techniques is super beneficial because not only can you just get an environment on demand now and very easily replicate a production-like environment with similar traffic um, and you can follow those through the same system um, especially if you're using like some of the uh, advanced traffic routing techniques such as service mesh istio particularly the way it does traffic mirroring is, is something that i've seen that has a lot of benefit you know the ability to say i get a production request so i'm going to put one down the real flow and then broadcast another over to a complete copy of what I'm about to deploy and validate that it, it it works successfully in that scenario is really cool. I mean, I think you've got to have a good way of, of obviously being able to compare, again, the two things. And if you were doing 
um, sort of a swap out of one component to look at it, measure it. It kind of becomes a, a slightly different um, type of test. I mean, essentially, uh, you can apply things like a, I guess, like a more site reliability engineering, chaos engineering type of approach um, to not only deploying your software in production, but maybe even deploying it within UAT, deploying like a similar type of thing and testing your experiment, essentially your experiment that you assume um, that the, the piece that you have put in is either going to be quicker or slower um, than what you already have. The question is, is I guess, is, is where, where that comes in the development lifecycle. If you think about it, that's quite far, or oh, it depends. It actually also depends on whether you are kind of a team that pushes to UAT quite frequently, or you do more of a, say, like a two-weekly or a, a, a monthly cycle of release. Um, and I think like those highly efficient, highly operating DevOps type model uh, within your software deployment or software uh, engineering principles means that you can very quickly try and throw away things because you're in that experiment-based approach already. Um, and in that case, I think all of the things that you mentioned, like canary releasing, um, sort of being able to do, uh, I guess, that kind of uh, either traffic mirroring in, in Istio, which is something that I, I've seen, at least at conferences, looking really promising. Uh, all those things look really cool. And I think, you know, it's, it's just one of the things to say is, is that what in, I think a lot, of, a lot of people playing catch-up which is fine because I think, you know, this is kind of the, the edge of where things are right now. Um, but there's a lot of promise to being able to, to test your, to, to, to do experiments on very basically on production without impacting production. Um, and that's like a really nice place to be in compared to like in the, in the previous times where you'd be trying to duplicate infrastructure, maybe trying to get that simulated data. We, we often have like in, in the book that, that Ben and I worked on, we have this anti-pattern called UAT is my desktop where you try and run the, you know, your whole UAT environment on your desktop and see what happens. And although, you know, with things like Docker and, and being able to run lots of images locally, it's still not UAT. It still still doesn't have that same profile. And the danger, obviously, like any, we talk, we're using the term experiment here. But if it's not an experiment, unless you only change one variable, and that one variable you want to change is the code or the, the the piece that you're deploying. You don't really want to be changing kind of. All oh, right, well, is that's run on a Mac versus this is run on Linux, and 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 seeing for the first time when you when you flow prod traffic through it, that that doesn't work. But I guess like the other thing that you kind of introduced by, by, by bringing this topic up as I've been thinking about it a lot recently is it's, it's basically the risk of change as well. So if you can lower the risk of change by putting something in and experimenting with it in prod and quickly turning it off, if it's not quite what you expected, that's actually, um, that's, a, that's again, it's a nice place to be in. Um, it, it reduces the, the amount of uncertainty and the amount of, of potential fluctuation. So yeah, so certainly like an interesting topic for sure. Something that we haven't had access to in many places are still kind of adopting what I would class as um, east to west traffic pattern organization to be able to really sort of make use of this um, to kind of benefit. Uh, one of the things I do in, in my day job at the moment is work on API infrastructure. And so we see a lot of people, like talk to Daniel Bryant a lot and, and other people within industry. And it, it feels like a lot, of in, a lot of companies are solving their like north to south traffic. And I think a lot of companies have got quite far with that. Uh, the east to west traffic is, is kind of like the, the leading edge, but with east to west uh, traffic management becomes a lot of these, uh, these real advantages that, that we're starting to like, talk about now. Cool. 
So you introduce also a, a new concept here, or we touch in a new concept, the experiment. And uh, before, you talk also about bias when we were doing the benchmarks. Do you consider that doing experiments will fight or amplify my own bias? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I mean, I'm going to stop saying any terms now because I realize that as I say more terms, I get more questions. Um, <laughs> now, this is a good one, right? Because I think when it comes to bias, you, you're either biased in a way that you know, so you're, you're outwardly biased towards a particular technology or a particular solution space, or maybe it's a bias that you don't yet know about, like it's an unconscious bias or maybe even just, yeah, okay. Um, and I think the main thing that comes into those experiments um, is ensuring that you don't have a bias in your setup of the experiment as well. So it's, it's really, really difficult because if you go into, I guess, start putting together an experiment and you don't review with somebody else, hopefully somebody with not the same kind of like preferences as you, but someone, some, maybe someone else, if you don't go into it, like reviewing what you're trying to, I mean, this, this is the problem, isn't it? With, if you go into an experiment and go, I'm going to try and prove X and somehow like by almost accident, or it's, it's not actually proven through your experiment. Maybe it's a side effect. Um, something happens that you you kind of like looking to prove you go okay well that's essentially cause and effect that means that i am right it means that how i approach this is correct and therefore we need to make these like this specific decision so it will only amplify bias if you kind of set out your experiment in a way that's going to be i guess bias to the bias um it, it's probably worth not it's probably worth ensuring i think the best way to to kind of to kind of put my thoughts into better words here is it's, it's really imperative that the way in which you analyze the data that comes out of the experiment is done so in a way that's got statistical basis. So we can't be putting our, I guess like um, licking our finger and putting it in the air and going, okay, that figure is X. Therefore it means that I was correct. I think it's got to be much more like, okay, well, we can see that no other variables changed, that we can validate that something weird didn't happen during the experiment. So we maintained a steady state. Um, the one thing that we did try and influence was influenced. And these are essentially based on like our, our, our reading. This is like the, the confidence intervals that we've got. And therefore, we can possibly assume that this is the case. Um, and obviously, we have to remember that most experiments are trying to prove something. Um, it just—it doesn't mean that they're necessarily biased by the fact that they're trying to prove something. So, I think in order to try and reduce that bias, it's it's important that you ensure you're in a controlled environment, that your um, actual experiment, like cause and effect, is reviewed by somebody else as well, and that what you actually then get out of it is something that you can apply analysis to that, that actually, if you do have a bias, it's fine to be trying to prove that what you think is correct is correct, but you do so in a way that's, that's not, it, it's, it's sound basis in what you're trying to prove essentially. Cool. Uh, cool. Very, very interesting uh, views. Um, and we are heading towards the end of the, 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 the episode and I still have many more questions, but I will just choose to put one. Looking to our industry, um, and well, 
knowing myself at least a few years back with a strong opinion, do you think that we are ready to remove more bias or we are still very biased in our opinions? Yeah, that is that is a good question. Um, I would say that, I mean, I think there is always going to be a degree of bias on a team, right? I think, I think if you've got individuals um, who are all the same in terms of like, you know, like maybe their background, maybe their technical experience, um, you're going to potentially get like a, a group bias as well. Um, and the one thing that I would say is extremely important in our industry uh, is ensuring, well, in any industry, in fact, in any team, is the best teams are those that like really embrace diversity. And that's di diversity in thought, diversity in background, diversity in technical experience. Um, because what that really allows you to do is, is, I think, is to ensure that you're approaching all problems with kind of a very collective, open mindset. Um, it means that you've got people who are willing to challenge, um, like individuals, I own, um, so I guess I like thought somehow something should operate or how something works. Uh, you know, some of the best people that I've worked with have always said, well, okay, you know, you think that's how it works. How, how do you know that? Can you, can you demonstrate that to me? Can you show me that experiment? And it's not like, it's not supposed to be like contentious. And I think, there is a risk of people. Oh, well, if, if people are always challenging me, that's that's not a good thing. It, it's the only way in which we become stronger as individuals and, and better technologists is by ensuring that we are challenged and that we can. When it comes, especially because I, I spent quite a bit of time teaching, um, and it's it, if you go into a classroom, that it's really the, the worst thing you can do as a teacher is to assume that you're going to know everything because you won't. And um, I, I remember back to teaching C++ and. I do know a bit of C++, enough to teach it at least, and enough to debug through problems. Uh, but we had somebody in the classroom who was on the C++ standards committee, which is, you know, it's kind of like, well, I am never going to be correct <laughs> compared to this person's understanding. And, and it's really kind of how you approach the discussion. It's like, well, what does it really matter if you're wrong? Like the only thing that really matters if you're wrong if you've got an ego, it maybe does matter. But it, 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 if, if you think about it, what you're getting to is like, it's collective learning. Um, now, I, I always think that one of the best parts about community and sort of being involved in Java community and, and other activities like that is that you get challenged with the way that you think more often. And being, I think that is the real basis in ensuring that it is to remove bias in all forms, not just technical, um, but remove that from like the, I guess, the soft skills of your team, um, the way in which you look to build up like a, a unit of people who are extremely, extremely efficient and uh, effective at what they do. Thanks for those um, personal uh, insights uh, and um, the, the, the view on our industry. And um, last challenge, last question. I hope that is not a tough one. But uh, basically, we start with algorithm optimizations and micro uh, versus micro optimizations. We went to teams. We talk about our bias and experiment. What are the resources that you will recommend to our audience within this space? Yeah, so I mean, I think when it comes to uh, looking at the heuristics specifically around, 
I guess, I guess like how you approach a performance problem. Um, I mean, it, it would be remiss of me not to mention our book. Our, our book does go into uh, the, the, I guess like the approach to performance. Um, but there are other books that do that as well. We try, we try and approach it from quite a pragmatic perspective. And I think, you know, as long as you, approach from a pragmatic perspective you know there's some there's some great videos out there on java performance um i would recommend yeah anything that was that's kind of written or blogged about by kirk pepperdine uh, ben evans um richard warburton as being like key people to to follow and and to like really listen to the advice and there's some people i've, I've certainly learned so much from over the last yeah sort of 15 years or so um so going beyond that, like we, we talked about JMH and I think if you're, if you're looking at profiling and benchmarking in Java, having an understanding around JMH is really important. So, um, I could pick, I could send over the link, but JMH is an, an extremely useful project. If you do find yourself having to micro benchmark, like that's one of the things to do. I actually have a, a freely available video on micro benchmarking that I'd be happy to share. Um, it's a little bit dated now cause it's a couple of years old but always, always willing to talk about that as well. Um, and yeah, I think, I think those are the main results. I think actually a lot of it's got, yeah, fairly, fairly kind of like, I guess a lot, a lot of my opinion and I, I like I do, do add is it, it does depend um, on, on what your situation is like. Uh, it depends on the tool sets and tool chains that you're using as well as to what you've, you've got available to you uh, to be able to solve some of the problems that you have. So yeah, I think in general, like if you're in the Java space, following some of those individuals um yeah those would be a, a really good starting point uh, the java specialist newsletter as well that's run by heinz kvutz is an extremely good newsletter um and general brain teasers from heinz are always uh, good for the gray matter shall we say <laughs> cool um thanks very much for uh, for your recommendations i will make sure that uh, they are on the, the summary of this episode so the listeners can follow on them and i want to to thank you for your time and for this pleasant uh, conversation i sure learned a lot so thanks for your time thank you very much don't forget to follow us on twitter at S-Crafts Podcast. You can also go to our website softwarecraftspodcast.com or follow our page on LinkedIn. See you next week.